Well, uh, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever sort of started a task and just kind of seemed like a really easy thing, but all of a sudden you've kind of overcomplicated this thing and it's one <laughs> a couple, couple of laughs already. Okay, perfect. I'm not the only one. Uh, I mean, a recent example for me, yesterday evening we headed out, you know, it's getting cold overnight, so we're starting to think, okay, hoses probably shouldn't be left out, and the garden's been frozen, so let's get stuff out of the garden, and, and Naomi and I are out working in the garden, and, and she says, can we, these, these planters are done, let's put them in the shed for the winter. No problem, this should be like, shed, right, done. But the thing is, as maybe you know, once you open up the shed, there's like, well, some of these things have to get out of the way. And I don't want to set this thing here because the furniture's got to get in behind that. And so if I just put those in now, then I'm going to take them out tomorrow. Forty minutes later, I think we've got four baskets into the shed, and we're happy about life, right? I, I don't want to pick on uh, politics too much or, or kind of administration, but some, some seemingly uh, really simple tasks take a lot longer than they should, I think. And, and I don't understand all the ins and outs of why they take longer, but, but it seems like if I want to just walk in and, and renew my driver's license, you know, I hit that age where I got to renew my driver's license this year, and I go in, and if I don't have all the pieces, I have to go back home and I have to get the other piece, and then I go back, and then they give me a pretend driver's license, and they say, don't shred the other one because you need ID. And then a little while later, like what could be, you know, a quick process takes a couple of weeks by the end of it, Partly because I forget documents and partly because the stuff has to go somewhere else and get more overcomplicated. Sometimes I have a tendency to overcomplicate my faith as well in my relationship to Jesus. I don't know if, if you ever do this, but sometimes I do. The thing is, at, at its core, you've ultimately been called to a really simple faith. Not easy, but simple. And so often when I, when I find myself overcomplicating faith, it's like, okay, I think Jesus has called me to do this and 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 this, and, and it goes on and on and on. Sometimes when I find myself in that sort of tailspin, it's really helpful to come back to his word, God's word, and maybe especially to open up to this little letter from Peter to his church. So if you have a Bible in front of you, I invite you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. One of the things that I'm, I'm growing to love about this letter, and it, I mean, it's maybe one that you've read a few times before. I know I've read it a couple times before as well. But the more we dig in here, I, I've really come to love just Peter's ability to take some really deep theological truths, kind of wrestle them to the mat a little bit for us, and then explain them in a way that makes more sense. It does have a simplicity to it, the way he speaks. Again, simple and easy aren't necessarily the same thing, but there's a simplicity to it. So let me ask you this before we jump into the text. If you were to summarize Christianity in three sentences, what would you write? Or let me, let me word it a different way because I had a conversation in between the services that maybe the question isn't totally clear. If you were to summarize our kind of discipleship journey or our following Jesus in three sentences, what would you say? And I kind of want that to, to, to rattle through your mind a little bit before I give you mine. And we've come to what might be really the, the center and the heart of 1 Peter. Uh, so much of, of, of 
of, of what is to come in this letter will hang on these couple of verses we're in today. And everything that we have come through in the past number of weeks, also we can hang on this hook this morning. So we're kind of at a, a bit of a hinge point of the letter. It's really a kind of a central theme verse, a theme passage, a, a thematic center of the book. And so Peter is summarizing where he's come from and where he's going nicely, sort of simply, in a couple of verses for us. So let me read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 11. He writes this. Dear friends, or my beloved, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. And conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles, those who, who don't yet know Jesus, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day that he visits. How's, how's that for a summary of what Jesus has called his followers to do? Let me even, even boil that down a little bit further to three statements. They're not original to me, so I won't take credit for them, but they're memorable, so I'm going to use them. It calls us to live like an alien, stranger, exile, fight like a soldier, and behave like a representative. Live like an alien, fight like a soldier, behave like a representative or an ambassador. Let's, let's dig in a little bit here. He starts this out with, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. Uh, we, we've hit this theme of, of live like an, uh, an alien, live like a, a stranger or an exile every single week so far. Peter's just driving this home and he doesn't stop after this morning either. He just keeps going. This is the way that you, you will live. Uh, much of what Peter has written has talked about how this is our identity as followers of Jesus. When we look at the world around us, we are foreign, aliens, strangers, exiles. We, we live cross-culturally. And not just, uh, I mentioned the first service. Like, so in about 2008, uh, my wife and I did a discipleship equipping course in South Africa. And so we traveled for uh, about 12 weeks or something. I think we were away. And so we went and we, we went with this organization based out of there called Foundation for Cross-Cultural Education. And so they had their sort of hub in South Africa, but they had bases up in uh, Namibia and Zambia, and they were getting up into South Sudan, which was a, just kind of starting to be a thing back then, and also into India and some places in, the, in, the, uh, in Southeast Asia where you couldn't really speak about being a Christian. And so when they were kind of on day one of this course describing who they were as an organization, they said, well, our name is uh, Foundation for Cross-Cultural Education because we operate across cultures, but... Because we can't declare that we're Christians in some nations, we're also the foundation for cross-cultural education. And I mean, I love a good double entendre, a good pun. And so we, we live not just as though we don't belong here, but our, our, our culture is different because we are cross-centered. Okay? Living cross-culturally is part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so Peter keeps hitting it again in these verses. But what, what is uh, an alien? or exile, or, or what is a, what a pilgrim or a sojourner? These words really boil down into a couple of ways of how we understand how we should live. And they're rooted in some significant points of our theology as well. They're not just good analogies, but it's rooted in what we believe. Here's what I mean. If Peter calls us uh, an alien, or a foreigner, or exile, or stranger, kind of point your word in there, 
it doesn't make sense for us to talk about living that way unless we embrace the truth of eternity. I'll say that again. If we believe that we should live like exiles, that doesn't make sense unless eternity is a real thing. Because if this world is all there is, why not do what the world does? Why not live for as much pleasure and experience and stuff and all the things that the world offers in this life if this is all there is? So if there is eternity, then it will cause us to live differently. Okay, so, and that's, that's part of the, our theology, our, our understanding that this world is not all there is, that God has created us for another world. So we don't believe that this day and place is our destination, but rather that this world is preparing us for the next, to be with Jesus. And so we're called to live as exiles. We, of course, engage with the world today. We don't separate ourselves from the world today but we keep our eyes focused on what is to come. And then we're also called to live as strangers, that we might, we might look different than the world around us. And so we, we strive for a, a simple, uh, kind of minimalistic even life, not because it's trendy and that's the style of the day, but rather because we don't want to get tied up and bogged down in the things of this world because we're made for another world. And so we understand that God is using this time this life, this place, this world to form us and shape us and refine us and prepare us for that final place we'll be, and that's with him forever. And that really goes against what culture says, doesn't it? It goes against, <clears throat> excuse me, how, how culture defines success, doesn't it? I, I mean, we could make, make the list. Our culture defines success as uh, the square footage of your house, the, the features you're able to get on your new car, bike, skis, computer, camera, whatever the latest, greatest toy that you have your eye on, bigger is better, right? That's what our culture tells us. Our culture tells us success can be defined and measured by how early you're able to retire, how well you eat, how up-to-date your wardrobe is. And I don't need to tell many of you that if you just hang on to your wardrobe, it's going to be in style again soon. So just like these things. Culture tells us that success can be measured by the amount of human power or authority you're able to amass and have for yourself. But every single one of those things is foreign to a biblical worldview that says everything we're going through now is just a journey to the next life. It's just preparation for what's coming. Now, I don't know about you, but this dance between two worlds is a near constant struggle for me. On my best days, I, I live focused on the world to come. Uh, you know, I, I get up, I spend time with the Lord, uh, drink my co we drink coffee together, I drink coffee, he joins me, and we, we spend time in the Word and all these things, and I'm focused on what's to come, and it, it, it drives me. But so often, it doesn't take long, it doesn't take more than even sometimes a couple moments where I'm kind of dragged back into the cares and ways of this world and think, hmm, maybe I do want a little more here. Maybe I do need to upgrade that. Maybe this is what's meaningful. My desire for me and my prayer for all of us is that we would continue to learn to live this life knowing that our ultimate joy, ultimate peace, comfort, and satisfaction 
will not be found in this world, but it will be found in the world that is to come. So let me ask, as we kind of conclude this section at least, not to make you feel guilt or shame or anything like that, but to help us evaluate. Sometimes we need some pointed questions to help us reflect, right? Do you live like an exile? When you, when you look at your goals, what you're striving towards, goals are not a bad thing necessarily, but they often reveal what's in our hearts, don't they? If you look at your goals, what stands out? Who's, whose definition of success, cultures or gods, would be met if you succeeded and achieved all your goals? Even think about the last couple of days or weeks. What, what was the goal of those weeks? And if you look back and at the end of the day and say, man, that was a good day. What made it good? Sometimes we, we try to kind of take life as we know it and as culture tells us, and we, 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 we have this thing and we're like, okay, I know Jesus is important, so let's try to fit him into the rest of this. But it doesn't work that way. You can't serve both Jesus and this culture, right? So this life is a journey. We have a destination. We are not home, but home is coming. So first he calls us, Peter calls us to live like an alien or an exile. The second thing he says here is to fight like soldiers. Verse 11 again says, Dear friends, again, this is all this is coming out of compassion and love, right? This is not a taskmaster giving you something else to do. Dear friends, my beloved ones, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires or sinful passions that wage war against the soul. Again, this, these, are, these are the words of a pastor who loves his church. I urge you, you guys, if you haven't been paying attention so far, hopefully the word urge makes you, this is Peter saying, I'll say it to you, Hopefully the word urge makes you kind of sit up and listen, stand up and listen. He says, hey, this, this is going to be really important. Listen up. Don't get complacent here. Maybe you've heard me talk about being a stranger too many times and you're sick of it, but pay attention, churches, he says. He says, I urge you to abstain, stop, run away, flee from sinful passions. Not just slow down. Hey, try to reduce these things in your life. Try to avoid them if you can. When other people are around, don't fall into this trap of thinking or living or doing. No, it says these sinful passions, these sinful desires that are in your life, run from them because they wage war against your soul, your very being. What's a passion? A passion, one definition I found this week was a passion is a powerful motivation or an emotionally charged desire. A powerful motivation or an emotionally charged desire. And so this is a warning against us, us giving into the powerful motivations and the emotionally de charged desires of our sinful nature. And so even in this, we need to remind ourselves of another key theological truth. By Jesus' work on the cross, and because of Jesus' work on the cross, the power of sin has been broken. Yes, 100%, and amen. But the presence of sin still remains. I don't have to sell you on that. I don't have to convince you of that, I don't think, right? 
the power of sin has been broken. Maybe we need to be convinced of that a little bit sometimes, be reminded of that. But the presence of sin remains. And this sin that still remains in the world, it wages war against your soul. So we have to recognize that every moment of every day, there is a war of desire, a war of passions, a war of wants and needs that's fought in our hearts and is fought for the control of our souls. This is going on in every situation, every location, every circumstance, and every relationship this side of eternity. And so we, not, we, we also need to not fall into the thinking that, that sin is only behavior. It's not only behavior. Sin absolutely results in behaviors, but ultimately the war of sin is being fought for control of our hearts and control of our desires. So we're living in a world where this war is present. The power of sin is broken, but the presence of sin remains. It continues. And we can't have a, a laissez-faire, casual, complacent attitude towards these things. It's, we are not living in peacetime. It's wartime. And the battle for our souls happens on two fronts. And this, I've, I've pulled a lot from a, a pastor and counselor in the States, Paul Tripp here. So I want to acknowledge that he's put these categories together for me. There's kind of two fronts that we fight this war on. And the first is this one that's probably more familiar. It's evil desire. Evil desire. This is me desiring things and wanting things that I know full well are outside of God's plan for me. It's when maybe in a conversation or putting myself in a position somewhere and I, and I decide, you know what, I'm just going to stretch the truth and lie a little bit so that I look better. I know that truth is the way of God and untruth is not, right? But I, I may do that anyways. Evil desire is a self-conscious moment where I know that I'm stepping out of God's will and want and call for me. It's that moment where maybe I'm walking down the street and I, and I let my eyes drift to an attractive person walking by and instead of just celebrating the beauty of creation, I let my mind go and start to think lustful thoughts. That's an evil desire. That's spiritual warfare happening. It's that conversation that I'm having that turns into gossip about another person. Church, sometimes we get a bad rap and sometimes we earn it by uh, gossip actually being our... <clears throat> prayer requests, right? Oh, we got to pray for Sean. He's having a rough day. I'm so glad that I'm not struggling with those things that Sean So Let me tell you all the things that Sean's having a hard time with, right? When we allow our conversation to go there, that's evil desire. Right? It's getting in a heated argument with someone over something that ultimately probably doesn't even matter. And you know in the midst of that conversation we're going to get to, I'm, I'm supposed to be an ambassador for Jesus, but in this argument, I'm just going to get so heated and I'm going to let my, my anger take over and I, I'm just going to win this sucker. It's not pushing ourselves back from the table when we know that we've eaten enough or drank enough. We just want that pleasure of just another bite, another drink. It's me raising my voice in my kids when they're supposed to be brushing their teeth and there's I don't know how you can talk so much with a toothbrush in your mouth and they're just going and her hands here and his foot's here all the things that's me it's it's when I know full well that the words I'm about to use the vol maybe not the words okay but the volume I'm about to use these words at the tone and the attitude of my heart 
are not what Jesus wants me to exhibit to my children. I will not represent Jesus well in that moment, but I just need to blow off some steam because why does it take so long to brush your teeth? So when you get in an argument with your spouse, and you get to that point where you're just like, you know what? Whatever it takes, I'm winning this one. It doesn't matter that Jesus has called us to unity and love and understanding and nurture and care in this moment, I don't care. I am winning this argument, whatever it takes, whatever I have to say. Trip as a as a counselor and pastor, he sat across the room with lots of um, lots of couples, and he's got this this way of kind of teaching that's kind of a just a, a deadpan that drives his point point home. So he says this. No spouse or, or no wife will ever walk away after you have verbally pinned her to the wall and say, just so thankful that this man is in my life. How I'm just so glad that God has put him in my world at this point. And all of these are evil desires, and I'm sure you can think of more. And Peter's calling us to stand firm against these things. There are places in every single one of our lives where these things crop up and we need to say in the power of Jesus' name, the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, not today. I will not go there. In Jesus' name, I don't have to submit or, or get into this evil desire. Uh, this battle for the heart of our desires isn't something we'll fight once or twice and then we're good either. This is something that happens probably in the in the the every little moment of our life. It might happen 10,000 times, and then another 10,000. Like this is a constant battle. The second front that we battle on, so we've got the evil desires. The second one is, is a little more kind of stealthy and sneaky. It's just our distorted desires or our disordered desires. See, the, the things that we long after, the things that we desire, have a tendency to morph in our hearts. One writer says, what, what was yesterday's desire becomes today's demand, and today's demand becomes tomorrow's need. And so we also war against disordered or improperly ordered desires. Tripp says this, he says, the, the desire even for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. Okay? The desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing because our hearts are only to be ruled by King Jesus. And so many good things have the ability or the, the tendency to become little idols in our lives. Having a, a clean, organized house can be one, right? It's not a bad thing to have a tidy house. It's not a bad thing to be organized. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. But if all of a sudden, my trying to order my home means I bark at my kids and wife because they don't organize the way I do, that's a problem. If I find my identity and how clean my house is, that's a problem. I'm being ruled by that. Other things, success at work, success at home can be a disordered desire that becomes the most important things in my life. I'm winning here. Our, our education or level of education can become a source of pride in an idol. Well, I don't have to do that thing because I'm smarter than they are. 
even our, our interests, our skills, our talents, our abilities, the things that God gives us, his gifts, can become disordered desires and little idols in our lives. So we don't only war against evil desire, but also against disordered desires. And as long as we continue to live in the presence of sin, which we do, our hearts have the capacity to turn anything into a little God replacement. Our hearts can make idols out of anything. Even family can become the most important thing. We'll, we'll, we'll lift these things up that, that they become the thing, the most important ruling thing that we attach our meaning to, our identity to, our purpose to, our inner, our inner peace to. It can be our family. It can be our relationships. It can be our sexuality. It can be our money, our possession, our status, our toys. Again, the list is endless. And again, none of these things are necessarily or inherently bad. But the problem becomes when you start to look for, for something in creation to fulfill that need for identity and purpose and peace and meaning that we can only get from the Creator. So we're called to abstain from the sinful desires or sinful passions that wage war against our soul. We fight like soldiers. The third thing, behave like a representative. Look at verse 12 with me. Peter says, conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles, those who don't know Jesus yet, so that when they slander you as evildoers, and i I got to pause here again. Sometimes the biblical authors, they really like rub me the wrong way. Because I'd be okay if he had written, so that if you happen to get slandered, we can deal with that. I was like, okay, if I happen to get slandered, no problem. I, I'll come back to this text. Peter will give me some wisdom. But he doesn't say if. So that when they slander you. Looking forward to that again. When they slander you, they'll observe your good works because you're conducting yourself honorably and will glorify God on the day that he visits. So we conduct ourselves honorably even among the people who don't know God. The call here is for us to live in a way that pleases God first, honors God first, brings glory to God first. It's living with the understanding that, that my life doesn't belong to me anymore. When I've given my life to Jesus, when I've submitted to his leadership and lordship over my life, I've been bought by a, with a price. That's not English. Bought for a price by Jesus. Now I'm under his authority. I belong to him. Paul Tripp says this. He says that we live with an understanding that God's grace has been given to you not to make your little personal kingdom of your wants and your needs and your feelings work, but God has given you his grace so that you can be a part of the glorious, expansive work of his kingdom. It's all about him. He's invited you to the plans and purposes and motivations and desires and accomplishments of a greater kingdom, of his kingdom. It's beautiful. But there will never be a space or place that you or I occupy where we are not living as Jesus' representatives. We can't like, okay, I'm, I'm leaving the house. i got to remember, people see my Trinity hat and they know that I'm a pastor, so behave drive nice, don't cut people off in the grocery store, like pay the full bill, tip well. No, no, no. All those things are good and true, but 
every space that you and I are in, we are living as Jesus' representatives, his ambassadors. And every moment of every day, we are a part of God's ministry to the world, revealing him to the world. And the way that we get to do that, there's several, but one of the main ways you get to do that from this text, the argument that we have for the existence of God is our love. It's us trans, uh, displaying our transformed and transforming lives. Uh, back in about, I don't know, 2004 or so when Facebook became a thing, I resisted initially, quite a while actually, I was, it became a source of pride, um, so then I joined. Uh, I re resisted initially, but then I joined Facebook and all of a sudden, I was, you know, I was in university at the time, I think, and, and these names of people popped up that maybe I went to elementary school with or junior high with, and I thought, ooh, uh, nice to see you. Friend, 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 right? Friend. But when I look back on my life, and when I look back at who I was in elementary and junior high and high school and even early university, man, I cringe sometimes. Those were not the best days for Sean. And so I, I know, I can look back, I've got some writing from junior high we found in a box in the basement that, thank you mom for sending that home. And just the way that I write, the attitude and the snark even I had at that point, I was like, who is this kid and what did he need? So I know that I've been transformed and I continue to be transformed by Jesus and the Holy Spirit at work in my life and I hope beyond all hope that that transformation, at least in some little piece, will be visible and apparent to everyone who knew me back then, accepted my friend request on Facebook, and checks in every once in a while and says, Pastor? What? And I, I hope beyond all hope that it's asked questions, not for my glory, but for Jesus' glory. So we strive to keep our conduct honorable among those who don't yet know Jesus. We strive to live a life in, in careful and willing submission to God's plans and purposes for our life so that when we are criticized, when we are attacked, the things that are said about us will be proved false because of the purity of our living. Man, I pray that this would be true of me and of us. And yes, the lives that we've built for ourselves, our families, our careers, uh, all the things, they're all important. But each one of us has a higher calling than any of that because primarily we are God's representatives, his ambassadors. That means you and I are gospel-centered neighbors. We are gospel parents and grandparents, honorable, honorary parents and grandparents. That means we are gospel teachers, gospel realtors, gospel engineers, gospel doctors, gospel dentists, gospel opticians, gospel retirees, gospel friends, gospel baristas, gospel, gospel, gospel. That's it first. That's our primary calling is to be people who everything we do is motivated that somehow, some way, in some form, our lives would accurately show people the truth about the gospel. Look how the verse ends. 
you do this so that they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. There's a bit of a twist ending there, isn't there? I don't know, I don't know if you've noticed that before. I honestly hadn't before this week, I don't think. I, I mean, I've read Peter a few times probably. But this verse talks out about, talk, starts out by talking about someone who is slandering you. And at the end it says, to glorify Jesus. What kind of person glorifies God? Somebody who's been transformed by his grace and his mercy and his love in their life, right? Mockers and slanderers do not glorify God. They don't. So even this person, we take licks because the way we live may be the example that starts that person on their transformation journey towards Jesus. So that one day, when they stand before the king and glorify him, what an amazing calling we have. But because of the humble way we live our lives in submission to Jesus, people might come to believe in the gospel and to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, as leader and rescuer. So we live like an alien, we fight like a soldier, we behave like ambassadors. Now, Peter's not going to just leave us here in a little bit. He's going to tell us, you know what, you can't just live well and hope people understand who the Trinity is because you cut the lawn for them. But he will tell us that we have to use our words as well, so we'll get there. But when we live our lives sold out to Jesus, people will scratch their heads and take notice. People might notice a peace in the midst of anxiety. A, a peace in the midst of conflict and anger. They may notice a calmness and kindness in their lives. They may notice the way that we organize our relationships and our finances and, and all the things and, and, and kind of scratch their heads and be like, I don't understand. Tell me about this. Now, if we were to say we've got to the end of verse 12, let's close our Bibles and pray and end the service, we'd be doing a tremendous disservice to the text. I've been reading these verses for a good week. I've been studying them for the week. I've reread this message a few times. I've already preached it once today. And still, as I go through this, I'm reading this, and in my head I'm thinking, Phew, Sean, you got to grow up here. Sean, you got to do this. Sean, you got to do this. you got to do this. The problem with that is I say, I've got to fix this. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is not about do better. This whole passage points us to the person and work of Jesus. Consider that. I said we want to, we want to live like exiles, but Jesus is the ultimate exile. He said in the gospels, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He left heaven and came to be a part of our mess. He was willing to to be slandered and to be a reject and to not have a place to call his own home. He was willing to face injustice and betrayal because he knew he wasn't made for this world, but he had his eyes set on the final goal of going back to be with the Father and the eternal redemption of all of us as well. He endured that junk for us. He was the ultimate exile. He was the ultimate soldier. 
He gave his life to conquer Satan's sin and death. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 said that, says that Jesus made a public spectacle over his enemies, triumphing over them at the cross. Death thought it had won, but it had not won. And he is the perfect representative of the Father who sent him. Again and again, as you read Jesus' teaching, he says, if you look at me, you see the Father. Paul tells us Jesus was the, in, the visible image of the invisible God. Again, Jesus says, I came to do one thing. One thing is what I'm here for, the will of the Father. So Jesus is the ultimate exile, the ultimate soldier, and the perfect representative. And so I want you to hear this. He didn't just do all of this as an example for us, setting a bar that you and I could never live up to, but he did it as a substitute for every one of us because he knew that none of us, that you and I could never stand before the presence of God and say, God, I lived every day perfectly as an exile. I fought sin and I triumphed my whole life. And every way, every interaction I ever had when I was living down there, when I was on earth, (laughs) whatever that looks like, right? We're getting into something else. In every way in my entire life, I represented you perfectly. Jesus knew none of us would be able to do that. And so he came and he did it for us. Jesus, the exile, the soldier, the representative, is the only place that we can find hope because he did the work for us. So if you've never trusted Jesus as leader and rescuer, as Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to consider why is that? What's, what's in the way? If there's questions and concerns and doubts, not, not scared about, not worried about those, sometimes it helps to express them, to spit them out. I would encourage you to share that with someone. And that can be terrifying. You say, you know what? I keep hearing about this Jesus, but man, this I'm really having a hard time with. Consider what's holding you back. I want to encourage you to trust him, to seek Jesus, to follow him, because in him we will find hope. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for this morning and this time that we could have together, time that we could have worshiping you through song, through being together, through, through giving, through prayer, through hearing from your word. When we started, I, I prayed that we would have a, a heart of expectation and anticipation that you would have a word from us. And so I pray that you remind us of what, you, what you're saying. And Jesus, I, I pray that as we consider this text, and as we consider uh, our lives as, as exiles and soldiers and ambassadors, uh, that you'd re- reveal ways that we have fallen short, not to heap guilt on us. We know that guilt doesn't come from you. But conviction, loving conviction. Thank you that you'll never leave us in those things, either that you will, you will help us to continue to be transformed. Father God, thank you that you love us. And Jesus, thank you that you died for us. And Spirit, thank you that you are with us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.